Blog Talk Radio. Aloha, everyone. Welcome to the People's Medicine Show. This is a, a live call-in show. We have a phone number. It's 646-929-2463. So my name is Sean. I'm the host. I'm an herbalist, gardener, medicine maker, uh, dreamer, lover, uh, radio uh, podcast uh, host. <laughs> so I pre-recorded uh, a bunch of my segments tonight, but this one that I'm talking to you right now is live. And we do this every month, the first Thursday of each month at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time. So if you call into that number, you can press 1. Or if you just want to call in, if you don't have a Wi-Fi or radio signal, you can always tune into the show by telephone and stick me on speakerphone, and I'll keep you company for two hours or so. I'm not too sure if we'll make it to the two-hour mark tonight, but I assembled um, some of myself talking about what I wanted to talk about and then uh, a number of other clips. So um, one of the things I didn't cover on uh, clips that I recorded is I attended the Allies for Plants and People Symposium, and it was from June 12th to the 14th, and it was a teleconference. So normally these large herbal conferences are in-person events where there's plant sales and all kinds of craft and um, vendor-type things. So it was really interesting to have a large-scale herbalist conference um, done entirely by teleconference. And I, I'm on the Hawaiian time zone, so I wasn't able to tune into many of the talks, but I got to go on a, a garden walk with Rosemary Gladstar, and she is an absolute delight. And uh, even the most basic herb walk from Rosemary Gladstar is like an advanced class in herbalism. <laughs> you know, it's just like she's just showing you the basics. And I'm just floored. Um, to, to have um, wandered around her backyard with her. Um, and I think um, a lot of these talks are recorded. You can watch them. I think the website is called, well, no, I don't think. The website is called botanicwise.com. And the conference was Allies for Plant and People Symposium. So, yeah, and I also attended a talk from Paul Bergner and believe, um, I, I keep saying believe, I got to stop saying that as a, as, uh, a word. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting over my ums and ahs and I'm turning into other words like I believe, I believe. <laughs> so, so Paul Bergner did a, a talk with Susan Reed a couple months ago with COVID-19 and it's on Susan Reed's uh, Wise Woman Bookshop website. You can hear that talk. I think it's $10. And um, Paul was really knowledgeable about uh, the history of um, past plagues. And he talked a little bit about um, the plague of eight, uh, 1918 and 19 that occurred in the United States. And um, I don't know if they call it a plague. They call it a, a pandemic. But I think after hearing that talk from Paul and Susan and just having some form of a historical basis of the way people act and these type of things, it gave me a lot of peace through these past few months of having some of that knowledge under my bed 
belt or perhaps just a version of history that seemed helpful to me. And um, patterns of history are often repeated and um, human tendencies don't really, you know, change that human beings acted the same in 2020 as they acted in 1918. And I think that's one of the wonderful values of studying history and just versions of history. And yeah, I guess eventually we all just have to come up with a, a version of history where we're comfortable, where we can make our decisions and develop intuitions about the way people act and the way society acts. And um, so, yeah, I did want to mention, though, and I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to afford uh, the entrance fee to Alice for Plant and People Symposium. So I applied for one of the scholarships, and they granted it to me. And thanks to everyone that paid for the conference, to be able to, they were able to pay it back and pay it forward and give, you know, give some free admissions to other people who couldn't quite pay this past month. So that is something to always consider. If there's an herb conference and symposium that you want to attend and the entrance fee is too much, they often have these work trade programs and ways for you to attend these conferences that Herbal medicine is people's medicine. The idea is to teach it to as many people as we can and to transmit our knowledge and to always be rubbing off on each other in, in the coolest ways. So Paul Bergner's talk at the conference was uh, about THC and overdosing on THC. And he, he was mentioning how people develop a lot of tolerance for THC medicines or even recreational THCs where they need three and four days uh, completely away from it to be able to reset their <laughs> cannabinoid receptors and how it, perhaps there is been too much THC that's been bred into cannabis because it was made illegal. So that is probably changing because people are developing all these other cannabinoid-rich strains of cannabis. And I think as people, as the legal and recreational and medical cannabis market develops, there's going to be a lot more, you know, just organoleptic uh, tendency for people to probably uh, consume less strong on the THC and Low THC just is very much proven that when it's combined with the other cannabinoids, it, it's synergistic. It has this entourage effect, which makes it um, more effective. And there's going to be more and more uh, evidence published uh, as far as the anti-cancer um, properties of cannabis. It's just been known for like 100 years. So it's not really something that needs to be researched to tell you whether it's true or not. But Paul's talk was pretty alarmist. And I guess it's like sort of his medicine show right now that he, he can travel around with and probably get a lot of business with anti-marijuana groups. So it is kind of fun to see an herbalist, you know, latch on to that type of market that, yeah, there's a market for people that want uh, a talk on the dangers of cannabis and yeah, an expert herbalist. He, he said that he has uh, 400 case studies that go across his desk a year, you know, three or 400 uh, from all the different people that he teaches herbalism to. So he's coming from a place where, yeah, he's seeing um, cases of people that are having trouble using too much cannabis. 
So I thought it was a fun, fun topic, but the one thing I noticed about the older, more like, you know, the old herbalists like Rosemary and Paul is they're done with Q and A's where the younger herbalists like Tammy Sweet and Guido Mate, they'll stay there for as long as you want, you know, and do Q and A's forever. And I think it is kind of fun that I think the theme for my show today would be like playing with kids my own age. I really have more fun playing with kids my own age where I love older and younger people. But there is this sweet spot where I'm learning so much from just people in my age group of like 45 to 55. And I think just we have a common history. And we're chronologically all sort of in this space right now of, um, I guess they would call it middle age. I don't know really what you call it, like pre-crone. Yeah, I think we're in our pre-crone type of um, existence. So I just wanted to, um, yeah, put that out there. I want playing with kids my own age to be sort of the um, theme for tonight. And I, I like talking about the Generation X and the Boomers and the Millennials and how um, there is certain things that just define people's ages, you know, and and it's, it has a lot to do with uh, history and uh, traumatic events, traumatic public events. And, um, yeah, it, it just shapes people. And um, so I think we're going to begin with someone who is my own age, and her name is Melissa Etheridge. She did this uh, beautiful uh, YouTube video on the Rolling Stone channel this month. So I'm going to um, totally hook you up to um, some Melissa Etheridge. This song is called The Human Chain. Hey, Melissa Etheridge here. I'm going to uh, play you a song that I wrote for my last uh, medicine show album. A song about how we're all connected through our great diversity. It's called The Human Chain. Break my heart Thank you. 
Okay, that was Melissa Etheridge, and that was clipped from a new YouTube video posted by Rolling Stone, and um, she does a couple songs in her home, and that was called Human Chain. So yeah, the, sh the show is about herbs and current events, whatnot, new ideas, old ideas that are rehashed and reprocessed. Re <laughs> so I guess I'll begin the show with some of the plants that I've been working with this month. I'm really happy about purslane. I'm moving into a new home and I brought my container gardening. I have this uh, self-irrigating planter, it's called a SIP. And uh, I believe the brand name that I have is called a city planter, but it's a wonderful idea because the plants that grow in these type of container gardens have a water reservoir. And um, yeah, perhaps you could just look it up and take a look at the engineering that went into it. And I think it was um, designed by some real, you know, big agriculture scientists. And I think it's really fascinating how uh, if you are into soil biology, how um, these self-irrigating planters, they have a reservoir which sort of um, garners a, a different type of bacteria than the bacteria that would latch onto rain that's coming up on the top of the soil. So the water on the bottom of the soil, I'm sure, has different type of bacteria, more of like an anaerobic bacteria that would be underneath the plant with the oxygenated bacteria that would be sort of in the soil. So that's something that I've been pondering about, like why do these self-irrigating planters, um, the plants look just so happy using them and it's just a pleasure to garden to say, does this plant need water? And there's like a little floater bob on a, on a couple of the ones that I have. I have one that's called a grow bucket, which is a little bit different from the city planter. And the grow bucket actually has like a bobber that shows you the water level in the in the bottom uh, reservoir underneath. So let's get back to purslane. So purslane is one of the happy plants that I, you know, a friend, you know, just gave me a bunch and wrapped it up in a piece of newspaper and said, yeah, go plant it. And purslane is a really lovely plant. It's really high in uh, omega-3, which is, I don't know, um, too many... Um, vegetable plants where you can get those type of nu nutrients. I always remember a story from like tw over 20 years ago and I think it was Bill Sardi on maybe the Laura Lee talk radio program and he was talking about a population of Greek women who emigrated or immigrated or emigrated to the United States and they had very high uh, breast cancer rates amongst them and they all came from I believe one of the Greek islands and when they went back and studied the population of women back on the island they had pretty close to the same type of diets you know they traditional Mediterranean type Greek diet really well-rounded a lot of um, plenty of um, dairy and eggs along with a lot of uh, fresh vegetables and Bill Sardi was coming up with the conclusion that the eggs that um, the women were eating in the United States did not have adequate levels of omega-3 uh, fatty acids. And it was a sort of a deductive conclusion, so I don't think it was really, but I always remember, and he went back to and said that the chickens back in Greece ate plenty of this purslane herb. 
And I believe that was the plant that the chickens ate. So I'm moving into this new uh, rental property and on right on, near my uh, purse lane garden is a big chicken with about 10, 10 hatchlings all around it. So there's a lot of wild chickens here on the big island in Hawaii. So I have a family of chickens and they love my purse lane. <laughs> And the other uh, plant that I've just started growing and I'm looking forward to uh, learning more about is amaranth, which is a, basically a weed, but it's an edible weed with really protein and a lot of just powerful nutrition. I was reading a little bit about purslane, and how the, it's estimated that some of the Aztec-Mexican diet was up to 80% of their carbs came from amaranth. And uh, yeah, it could be really a staple food. And I made a birthday cake for a friend recently, and she wanted something gluten-free with not a lot of sugar. So I, I just Googled gluten-free carrot cake, and it came up with a recipe for like three cups of almond flour. And I didn't, I don't think I even had enough almond flour to um, do the recipe. So I did two cups of almond flour and one cup of amaranth flour. So that was my first um, experience, I believe, really cooking something or baking something really delicious that was made with amaranth flour. So I'm really looking forward to growing it and allying with this plant because um, here on the Big Island, it's really popular. And um, yeah, I'm really... <laughs> There's so many different varieties, and it's a very much a new world weed, and a, a new world edible weed. It really didn't come come to the um, North and South America um, via Europe. It, it was here, waiting for the Europeans, and um, being ingested by the native populations here. So it is funny how I'm calling it populations and I've been transcending this like whole concept of race. So I guess I'll just come come right on top of this this race thing. How um I filled out a census um form this this past month and one of the very first questions like after my name and where I live is what race are you? And if there is any proof that racism is systemic, it's basically our U.S. government asking us to sign up for a race. And not many people know that they give you all these selections, white, you know, Latino, African, all these different races to pick from. <laughs> At the very bottom, there's other. So you can just fill out other and say, I don't believe in race. And so this was my very first census that I did not sign up to be a race. And I've been, um, I guess I'm going to just talk a little bit more about that, but I wanted to just get that out, that that's one of the current events in my life, that I filled out the census form for the first time and didn't sign up to be a race. And I think that really is what systemic racism is, is the, the whole construct that there are races, which are some vague thing that's not based on any science. It's just um, uh, something assigned to people by their skin color. So I think that is the beginning of what racism is. It's the name race 
itself. It was basically a slave trader word. It started out as sort of a slang from an Italian word, raza, which refers to, um, you know, stock of animals and just like species of livestock. And, um, yeah, so, I don't know, these kind of word studies about, like, wh when did the word race start being used? Yeah, about 1700. I was like, you mean it's not an ancient concept that we're all divided by races? And the way you hear some of these scientists talk, it, they think there's some, like, biological conclusion. They, they sort of, like, slip it through, and they call it populations. <laughs> so that's what really, when I when I was talking about the north and south american pop native populations who lived here came to mind that yeah there's a lot of people that understand that race is a construct but they're still calling it like populations i don't know it's just one of those things that i've been studying about and learning about so i guess i'll get on to other um herbal topics you know herbal medicine plant medicine gardening on uh, the green world so I was on Susan Weed's Zoom talk yesterday, and somebody was talking about making a lemon bomb tincture, and they didn't have any hundred proof vodka in there. And Susan, one of Susan's ideas is, yeah, just use a hundred proof vodka to tincture most everything, and it's strong enough to preserve the flavor and just the full taste of the herb and the medicine, but it's not too strong like an Everclear, which is going to completely disintegrate the herb and not really give you um, a pleasant flavor when you put when you put some of the drops of the alcohol tincture into um, water. You're not going to have as vibrant of a flavor. And I believe a lot of people do use 80-proof vodka to make tinctures, but they're not going to have the shelf life. And you're probably going to need to um, steep them from longer. So, I don't know. It's just like I've never really questioned it. And I've always just um, endeavored, I don't know, I'm trying to think of the other word, uh, push to find 100-proof vodka. Somebody was saying they're up in Canada and they just can't find 50% alcohol vodka to make tinctures. And it was funny because I was thinking um, when I... I was going to a school in 2012 up in British Columbia, and I used to get the cheapest vodka on the uh, ferry going back from Washington State in the duty-free shop. And so perhaps um, if Canadians are looking for 100-proof vodka, they can get down to the border to one of those duty-free shops because it was actually pretty... Um, uh, <laughs> I guess you would need to get on the ferry to be able to uh, qualify to to purchase duty-free vodka, but that was one of the things that I thought of. Uh, the other thing I was thinking about was uh, somebody was talking about they wanted to make uh, cannabis tinctures, and they were trying to find 100-proof vodka to do that, and I think um, I've been listening a lot to the Hash Church uh, YouTube, and they had a really good one about two or three weeks ago, and Josh from... The dragonfly earth medicine? Yeah, I think dragonfly is one word. They it, they uh, have the initials D-E-M, so I'm always thinking, yeah, D-E-D-F-E-M? No, it's just dragonfly earth medicine. But Josh was on the program, and he was talking about the 
when people grow cannabis that want to make medicine, they'll bring it to a lab and they test for like a, a, a wide spectrum of cannabinoids, but like 12 cannabinoids where there are, there are a couple hundred cannabinoids in the cannabis plant that Okay, so I'm pre-recording part of my show tonight, and that was my first rap that I recorded. So, yeah, so I did um, kind of get taken off topic where I'm so happy that I uh, pre-recorded this because now I can just fill in the blanks. So I've been really, when it comes to the mint family plants, lemon balm, rosemary, sage, I have not been making any tinctures of those mint family plants. The only um, mint family plant that I make an alcohol tincture with would be fresh motherwort. All the other mints that I use are all done with vinegar. And it's, um, I deal with dried, dried mints, fresh mints. Uh, I just am very much attracted to um, using vinegars to um, and I'm not even sure if, if I'm going to really capture much of the volatile poisons, but I just really love the flavor of the herbal vinegars that I've been making. So this is a call-in show. It's uh, 646-929-2463. If you do want to speak on the air with me, you press 1. But on my next clip, I'm going to... Um, it's going to talk a little bit about um, what's called nettle rot. So you basically just chop down trees and you stick them in a bucket of water and you put a lid on the bucket. And as soon as it starts stinking, you can use that water <laughs> as the most amazing nitrogen fertilizer. And it's not going to burn your plants. And you just dilute it, maybe um, 10, 10 parts water, one part of this um, water that's been soaking with vegetable matter. So the next clip really talks about if, if your plants need nitrogen and you want to plant, you know, if you want to feed your, it's really easy to get nitrogen <laughs> into your plants. But, and the building the soil part really is the part that's really hard when it comes to gardening and improving your garden and farm year after year. You want to always be continuously building your soil and mulching and using animals with your farming, you know, because vegan farming is chemical farming. <laughs> if you want to be a vegan farmer, you're going to have to use uh, petrochemicals and off-site minerals. And it's, it's a funny concept, though. but if you, um, I think we have one caller. I don't know if they're just listening or if they want to talk on the air with me. So um, I'm going to, I'm going to turn it on to a caller. Let's see if they want to speak. Hello, caller. area I hear you. How are you? I'm fine. Uh, thank you for taking my phone call. I'm a first-time listener, and I, too, uh, do not want to answer the question of race. And I think it divides us. And... Um, when it says other, it usually asks for, you know, your self-identification. And I just feel like saying human race and um, leaving it at that. I've had a few discussions over 
uh, about three, four decades. And most people don't think, don't even question that. They just sell it out and identify with it and are okay. It's it's an absolute, it's absolutely amazing though, because it's a very subtle brainwashing trick that if you want to sign up to be human race, you're at the bottom (laughs) where human race should be the first choice, you know? And, you know, if, but the way they're ordered is white is on top and people are very defensive now. And you'll hear them defending saying, where is this proof of white, you know, systemic racism? I'm like, yeah, that's that's one to begin with. Um, the way people my age were taught American history is another of white supremacy that is just under the surface of everything. And for people to sign up for white supremacy, it doesn't mean you have to even have white skin. It's um. So yeah, it's really it's really interesting, you know, that um, what what uh, what just seems to be so evident now, and um, perhaps there's a lot of people my age having having the same awakening. I hope because there's a lot of really cool voices going on. Like I I love listening to Dave Chappelle. Um, he he put out a free video earlier in June, and just his response of what's going on. He's like. I'm not going to talk anybody down, you know, and it's funny that the powers that be want someone influential like Dave Chappelle to talk everybody off what they're onto right now. And he's like, no, I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to just sit back and um, enjoy the show. I'm paraphrasing him. um, Of course. (laughs) Yeah. Well, as long as we keep talking, because I know very little about life, but I know that if you have two people in the room and they were raised under the same house and pretty much, you know, they have quite polar uh, perception of what reality is. And so how can you imagine agreeing with more and many more at any given time. I think, you know, they use catchphrases and they're so, uh, words are so tricky uh, uh, to use your word, but, you know, tolerate differences. It's no like celebrate the differences. You know, it's just... In that word tolerance, I'll play some clips later of Jane Elliott and she's like, or tolerance in itself is like really hateful. Like, what am I supposed to be tolerating? You know what I mean? Like, what are they doing wrong that I need to tolerate? It's implied. Uh, and just using that word tolerance, like, what, <laughs> you're assuming that I that <laughs> I don't like somebody, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's, and then it's, I have the authority to quash it, but I'll tolerate it. You know that that. You know, you're in the wrong, but I'm allowing you to be so. Right, that I'm going to let you get away with, yeah, what I need to let you get away with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's pretty Uh mind-blowing. 
I'm the only person having having these awakenings. And um, that this person, Robin D'Angelo, who wrote this book called White Fragility. I've not read the book, but I've watched some interviews with her, and I'm going to play a clip from her later, how she equates it with her, her struggle as a woman um, and how, um, you know, she, she has the same cognitive dissonances, and she's starting to make the connection that, you know, the power that men have is the same type of power that, um, you know, this culture of white supremacy has in society. I love that you called up to chat with me about this. Yeah, I listened to, I used to be a very avid reader, and um, as you're talking, this book that you mentioned was talked about at work today. And... um, I listened to this man uh, a few times. His name's Timothy, and I'll just spell his last name. Otherwise, you know, my pronunciation is uh, sure. real. But I, oh, please, yeah. So it's capital A-L-B-E-R-I-N-O. And um, he believes in God, and he uh uh, does a lot of work to um, try to prove the Bible right. But uh, the, one of the last podcasts I listened to, he's saying that uh, a lot of what is going on is the exact opposite of some of the instructions that the Bible gives you. Um, the um, uh, separation from family. Uh, the separation from identity of gender, uh, disciplinary actions. Um, uh, Just, it's very interesting. It's definitely Christian-based, but it, it shows you the polarity that is going on, and he puts it in a good versus evil framework and you don't have to do that at all I'm not asking you to do yeah. that what I, it's a, what it's I'd a, like you oh, to do mm-hmm. well, what I'd like you to do with this information if you expose yourself to him and his material is to take the concepts of what is basically right morally and that's all individually Right, and then see where our society is, and and then judge the morality, the morals and values, and where that's leading, and um, and and somehow that seems to open a lot of people's eyes. It's like, yeah, this is some basic respect of just you know personal space. Um, manners, right. values, you know, yeah. And, I love it. Um, I love but it, it really so... opens up your eyes. And young man, I really don't want you to feel alone. Um, I can tell you for a fact that's that you're bombarded all your life with 
you're the only one thinks this way. Get with the program. You cannot fight City Hall. Don't be too sensitive. You know, you hear this all your life. There is nothing wrong with you. Um, Our forefathers said it's important to question an authority. Um, You're a thinker, and we need you. You're voiceful. You're strong. And you seem very knowledgeable and and quite loving and giving. And I'm going to let you go because I know you have a lot to do. Yeah, I wanted to Um, just make sure I had the spelling correct. Timothy, A-L-B-A-I-N-O. Yeah, A L B E R. E R. Like in boy. Yeah, uh-huh. B and then E like an energy and R and like Robert. And then I N O. And he okay. has quite Albert a bit of material out there. So, yeah, that is a common theme, though, that goes across outside of Christianity, that we're going to tear ourselves away from some popular culture. We're going to be in the world, but not of the world. And even like the psychedelic philosopher, Terrence McKenna talks about, you shouldn't feel at home here. (laughs) You know, you should feel like a visitor, you know, (laughs) and um, that's when you really are able to be completely free when you're not, um, you know, being dictated to what to think and, you know, allow yourself to evolve. So I, I so appreciate, though, you bringing me awareness of someone else who's addressing these problems of, you know, being assigned to a race <laughs> and um, saying, no, I don't want to be assigned to a race, and I'm not, a, and I'm, and I'm not going to be tricked into signing up for one either. <laughs> That's right. That's right, because you sign your name on that piece of paper after well, you please, check those boxes. Well, to um, listen, I have some wonderful clips tonight from Jane Elliott. I have a little bit of Robin D'Angelo, and um, but I'm gonna I'm gonna move on, and we're gonna talk a little bit more about uh, organic gardening, and uh, I'm gonna play a clip from some cannabis farmers in um, Hawaii and the Pacific Northwest. Okay, great. I'll enjoy every one of them. So thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, please call Good back night. next month. Or hang on. Maybe okay, I'll, I'll have... talk to you. Okay. <laughs> okay, you take care. All right, bye-bye. So my next clip um, talks a little bit about um, using nettle rot in the garden <laughs> and how it's so easy to uh, truly do the organic method, where I've always been taught that oh it's so tricky but it's really not and um, I'm finding that as I learn to compost and use worms it's just like okay just throw some mulch on it and watch it grow and um, my only responsibility is to the soil the plants are going to grow the way they want to grow and um, sometimes when they're attacked by pests uh, they actually change their DNA and improve and then the next year when they grow they're actually (laughs) Uh, strong. So there is some like epigenetics going on with our gardens, how long, you know, sometimes it takes years for them to develop into that real ripe, you know, pristine robustness, you know, that we all, you know, gravitate to, you know, I don't want to, I don't want all my plants eaten up 
but it happens. I planted some tomatoes this year, and they just weren't suited to this location. So perhaps uh, I'll, I'll replant the seeds next year, and perhaps they will have adjusted by then. So I'm going to play this clip from the hashtag church. I think it was season three, episode eight. It's been like a little seven-minute clip. And, um, yeah, I thought it was worthy because um, it's exactly what um, – I've been into lately about just building soil. That's my responsibility. So I'll be back a little bit later. Nitrogen is the easiest thing in the world to create. I mean, anything that's green, just melt it in water and throw it over your, I mean, it's just insane how much. So I, for me, nitrogen is like simple, you know, it, it's to create the carbon and to create the organic matter, which holds the fungi, which holds all the nutrients. That's where the work is. Like that's yeah. where the attention for me, that's where the attention goes to. And then um, using the aisles for us is like the frontier, like everything that we walk on is just fat organic matter and over mulch the system, you know, and, and, and if you have big beds on the edge of the beds and on the sides of the beds, just a, a large amount of, of mulch for decomp decomposing and, and we're seeing a good eight to 12 inches of, of, of new soil that we're folding onto our beds each year right now. And those aisles are just all of our, our new soil for our beds each year. And I recognize indoors, that's different and everything. However, if you make your beds right um, on the edge of the beds where it comes up, you can get a lot of mulch in there, or, or even you could dig out holes in your indoor beds and pack those holes with food scraps and and different kinds of straw for, for mulch isn't necessarily the best because it doesn't have a lot of nutrients in it. So stra straws is fine, you know, because it's carbon. But, you know, with, with mulch, you're really kind of looking for nutrients. That's where, like, if, if you're mulching with comfrey and nettles and grasses and tree leaves and all that, then you have this crazy diversity with all the trace minerals in it and that's where the, the real magic comes from logan so, I mean, I'll, I'll jump in and share something about hawaii real quick because we're in a in like a continuous farm loop with the cannabis in particular where it's it's a year-round farming so we don't really get a season off or anything like that so your soil is always eating and always decomposing and um like what Appa josh was just saying a lot of you know, more green material is what I've been, been going for. And just real quickly, I drew this diagram real quick just to show like a living soil bed with your cannabis planted in it. And what I've been doing is planting my edges with, a, with comfrey, lemongrass, and taro. And so what I'll do is that the comfrey grows so fast, I'll just come through it when it starts to flower and you let some of it flower for the bees and everything, but chop and drop that onto the beds just constantly year round and then the lemongrass I'm adding on there year round and it's just always growing and I got on-site green waste to add to my uh to my beds all the time and then on top of that I'm using lots of uh just diverse cover crops obviously your nitrogen fixers that are in there which would be my imported seed but I'm trying to wean off of the imported seed a lot and I'm going more with seeds that are more prolific in my area which one of them is like this uh this edible amaranth the kalalu from jamaica 
and that one just keeps growing pr prolifically and I can just keep chopping and dropping it and reseeding it. Um, to add to that, one thing I do like to uh, use is daikon. Um, if you can keep daikon in your beds, all, and for some reason a girl's great with cannabis, they, they're like really, there's something going on with the um, exudates or something, but these daikon, I'll come back through and pull them out after they've been in there. Uh, maybe I'll harvest my cannabis and I'll see some of them that, that survived and you know you come back through and pull them out and they're a couple feet long of 12 to 24 inches long and some of them are decomposing and if you look through the middle of the daikon root it's like a tunnel like a like the outside's like a shell and the middle is like this rotting tunnel of like just microbial life and that's from the top of the soil you know, that's going straight in. So that's like an air tunnel and a microbial power, you know, super highway. And it's just adding life deep down into that middle and sub layer of your, uh, of your living soil. So I really love daikon and the same with the comfrey. If you pull up a comfrey root to replant it somewhere else, you see that rotting outside kind of decomposing root has this channel going deep into the soil of a brown rot kind of, uh, DK, which which you can just see is like this bacterial superhighway, and and uh, like Josh said, that nitrogen is just heavily abundant if you're using that. Uh, one more thing about uh, the choice of covering your soil: um, wood chips. I, I notice in cannabis, a lot of people kind of stray away from wood chips more than than uh, maybe they should. And I just started using a lot more wood chips recently with great results and uh, mixing actually like a hardwood with more of like a greenwood. We have, I live on a coffee farm, so we uh, chip the coffee boughs. And in just in one day of leaving these, the, a pile of coffee chips, you'll see this white mycelium running through it within 24 to 48 hours. It's just, you can go back and open up the, the pile of, of this because it's a soft green wood and um, you know, so it's just this living mulch and, and that mixed with the native Ohia wood chips, which are more of a hardwood, um, have created this whole nether layer of life that I haven't seen on my living soil beds that are like uh, 10 years old at this point, you know. So some of those, uh, those kind of tips and tricks, I would definitely employ the daikon, some of these deep drilling root vegetables maybe, or deep drilling things like... Um, like your uh, your clovers and your your um, you know your comfrey and having it nearby because yeah. what Rudolf Steiner said Rudolf Steiner said only a sick farm needs outside inputs. So is there your you farm go. sick? Is your farm sick or is your farm healthy? And and I'm not speaking for a farm that's just starting. Of course you might need to bring something in from the outside, but if you're living on an established farm and you're planning on being there for a long time, only a sick farm needs outside input. That's why my quote, that's Rudolf Steiner. So I remember that. Yeah, so that was uh, from Hash Church, uh, season three, episode eight on YouTube. And I uh, love that show. And it was one of those things I wrote it down. I was like, let's clip that and uh, play some of that on this month's show. So I'm really happy that I remembered to do that. So yeah, I'm going to get back to um, my Jane Elliott rap. And I have another um, 20 minutes that I um, pre-recorded, so I'm going to go ahead and play that, and maybe I'll be back to comment or fill in any of the blanks. Okay, so 
This is my second recorded segment for the show. Let me go ahead and continue to rehash what my month of June was like. So I think on my last show, I was I reported that uh, I received a phone call that the new owner who was going to purchase this property that I'm living in didn't want a renter. So I was given 45 days to move and I just went right to it and I think I found the most perfect house, a, a little bit of an upgrade, uh, a lot more private. So that's been just quite an upheaval and uprooting of having to move and pack for the month of June and try to plan and you know, space out all the stuff that I own and how is it going to fit into the new space and what needs to get chucked. And so I'm still sort of giving birth to the moving process and it should be done in a couple weeks. But the moving is actually fun. It's the unpacking and the planning part that's very much challenging to me. And um, But I seem to get better at it every time I move. What else is going on? Yeah, so... Yeah, I was going to uh, take a wonderful trip on this month. I was going to leave, I think, on July 16th. But um, I think back in April, all my plans kind of fell apart. I wanted to go see some dead and company shows and just wildcraft all throughout uh, Ohio and Michigan. And, yeah, so I got all my travel refunded to me and, you know, the expenses that I put out months and months ago to take this trip in July. So I'm staying home in Hawaii and um, it's just not practical to um, take any trips right now because Hawaii does have a very strict 14-day uh, quarantine rule so if I did leave um, the island I would be forced to uh, quarantine myself for 14 days if I returned so I'm just not willing to do that at this point so I, I love traveling though and it really is uh, quite an exercise in um, be, being resilient, being spontaneous, and also having, you know, a, a loose plan to follow. I, I love just the exercise of um, heart and mind that um, taking a couple weeks off and um, wanderlusting around um, does. I think I was born in a really cool time in history where I could, um, you know, on the weekends I've start hitchhiking and go to Grateful Dead concerts in, in, during my high school years. And so I think the tendency to get up and hit the road and go see some new things, that was put into me, you know, at a fairly young age. And it stays with me. But I do like this idea of uh, being older and really finding my nest and really being happy to stay stay home a lot and I'm just never bored there's always stuff to do and I don't know what really I can't even remember being bored and I don't know maybe it was that Patch Adams video I saw a few months ago that he's like yeah I have no no idea what bored means you know but so what else has been going on in June is I discovered Twitch streams and I I'm totally in love with one Twitch streamer and he, he streams every day from New Zealand and his name is Very Handsome Billy. I'm just totally have a crush on him and he, he does a lot of um, mashups where people send him clips and then he'll put them together and make brand new music right on the spot from clips that are 
uh, submit it. And then he has a, a segment called the Live Learn where people vote to see, okay, he's going to um, learn one song right there on the spot during, during a, a stream on the Twitch network. And very, very entertaining. I'd like to check in. I, since it's on every day, and he is in New Zealand, which is actually 22 hours ahead of me. And it, it is kind of funny that we're, we're close. Like, I'll be, it'll be 9.30 at night, and it'll only be 7.30, I think, in New Zealand. So I think we're only actually two hours away from each other, but in different days. <laughs> so... I love that, that uh, the whole international time zone, it's quite trippy to um, have friends in New Zealand and Australia who are already in t into tomorrow, well into tomorrow. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I've been listening to, um, yeah, I watch a lot of YouTube. Wait, I don't watch normal TV, so I'll turn on YouTube, and I have a bunch of channels subscribed. And I learned about Juneteenth um, from the Tone Talks channel. And if you really want to learn about uh, reparations and the economics and the great wealth transfer, they talk about it on the Juneteenth episode of Tone Talks on YouTube. Another really cool YouTube I saw was a, a long-form conversation interview with uh, John Stewart from The Daily Show, and that was on the Joe Rogan channel. So, yeah, those things were really um but I think my new favorite thing is that Useful Idiots uh, show on the Rolling Stone channel, which is Matt Taibbi and Katie Halpern. And at, at first, when you hear Katie Halpern's voice, at least for myself, I was really like, whoa, her voice is like so exaggerated. And uh, <laughs> like, it was hard. You know, I was like, I don't like her voice. I don't like her tone. And, and then... Um, I found out she does another show on WBAI in New York City, and I downloaded that show and the whole audio processing of her voice, and perhaps she's more in, like, NPR, less snarky tone, but um, she's a wonderful, wonderful co-host, and Matt Taibbi is just an absolute genius, and even though I cannot, I don't understand this new takedown article that he did on White Fragility... He's still one of my heroes and one of the people that I've been just listening to. And I really just like the way he goes about things. Uh, another cool thing was uh, the Brett Weinstein uh, Dark Horse podcast. And um, that's a lot of fun. He, he does um, a one-hour talk with his wife. And they're both evolutionary biologists. And they come from that world of science and the politics of science and the silencing of others and the excluding of others. And really interesting how um, he's very much of the moderate. Uh, Brett Weinstein is very much of the moderate. And he, he wants to uh, draft people to be moderate presidential candidates. So that's kind of a funny fun thing that he's doing, but I don't think he has um, 20 million, you know, subscribers like PewDiePie. It would be interesting if PewDiePie um, gave him <laughs> some of his audience to try to um, draft uh, a third pick of a presidential nominee. So yeah, that is kind of funny though that people want to um, pick a third choice for president. And then you think a lot about the way 
uh, we vote for a president, that perhaps uh, we should have a second choice. So that way, if we, if we want to vote for a third party and they, there's no chance in hell they can win, at least our second choice could count as something uh, which could perhaps uh, always give us a majority uh, vote of over 50% if there was a second choice. Because uh, we would need to have, um, yeah, that would be really kind of cool if um, we could elect the President of the United States with over 50% of a majority vote, you know, whether it's the people's first or second choice. But, um, yeah, so those are some of the ideas that I've been um, exposing myself to lately. I, I just like to um, tune into different voices. So I, I'll go on RT, Russia Today, and I saw that Jesse Ventura, the, he, he's another um, name that's bounced around. Oh, he would make a great president, but he does a... a a weekly television show on Russia Today. I, I did watch that this month. But, um, yeah, so I guess I'm just commenting a lot about media right now. And um, so I was talking about the old video game called Street Fighter to a friend. And I was saying, yeah, I, I was into the one that was on Sega Genesis, and I think it was called Street Fighter 2. And I was trying to think of all the character names and which one did I like and I think this is 1992, 93, so I don't, you know, I, I, I went online and I found that um, I thought it came, I, perhaps uh, it came from this company called Electronic Arts, but it doesn't. The Street Fighter game comes from Capcom, which I think is a Japanese company. But uh, anyway, on my rabbit hole of looking up things about Street Fighter 2, I discovered that the founder of Electronic Arts shares a large electronic arts is a large video game empire um that's been really active since yeah probably about 1990 but it was founded by a man named trip hawkins who actually shares my birthday and i was like wow i you know december 28th and i thought it was so cool i was like i don't think anyone else who i'm like wow what a cool person shares my birthday I, you know, of, of famous ilk. I uh, don't know. I can't really think of anyone off the bat that has my birthday. But this man, Trip Hawkins, uh, he was one of the first uh, employees at Apple Computer. And he was into the marketing and being able to trend and take temperatures of, um, you know, the buying public. Yeah, to be able to do marketing and uh, really interesting interesting person i was reading a little bit about him and he retired uh maybe 10 years ago and now he's sort of just like dabbling in things and he came out with a company uh called if you can and they had an emotional iq video game and it came out to like a lot of fanfare people were like oh you know i needed my kids are on the spectrum and all this stuff and it would be really helpful to um have a video game that fosters emotional uh, maturity or emotional, I think it's called emotional IQ, an emotional intelligence quotient. I think I, I was very emotionally immature <laughs> and I'm very much a late bloomer when it comes to controlling and having any kind of grip on my emotions. One of the greatest things that I discovered uh, in the past, like, 
five years is something called the Feeling Twins. And I found it actually at Susan Weed's um, apprentice's home, which is called the Nettles Patch. And it's on their refrigerator. And it's called the Four Feeling Twins. And it begins with sort of how there's four sets of basic feelings. And the first would be um, abandoned and safe. And the second one would be betrayed and trusting. And the third set of feelings, which range, which are a spectrum, is scarcity and abundance. Now the fourth set of twins is, is the big one. <laughs> and these are feelings of good enough and not good enough or not good enough and good enough, and how we have a feeling often of that's good enough, that's not good enough. And it very much is sort of like a Kinsey scale type of thing, you know, that we're always going to be on one side or the other of scarcity or of abundance, of feeling abandoned or safe, or having, um, yeah, just, <laughs> I can't, it's so much fun though when I think about that because it helped me to understand that, yeah, jealousy is not a feeling. Jealousy comes from some other thing of like, I'm not good enough and I need to bring you down to make me feel good enough. <laughs> you know, so it is kind of fun that, you know, the four feeling twins have really helped me just be able to just name what, what the fuck I'm feeling right now. And um, I think being able to name a feeling is, is kind of helpful because... Um, at that point, it could be um, claimed and say, okay, I'm owning that. How can you own something if you can't even name what you're feeling? You know, <laughs> I don't think anger is really a feeling, really. When you think about it, anger is an expression of one of those other feelings underneath anger. Like, that, that's really what's going on. That's not, you know. <laughs> and so, yeah, anger, sadness, I don't know. So... I, I would like to find this emotional IQ video game, and it looks like it was pulled from the market, and there were people having meltdowns from it. So it is kind of fun that I am um, going to be playing some Jane Elliott um, talks uh, tonight on the show, and um, I'm playing three nine-minute talks, and they come from the Black New Nouveau on YouTube channel, and they were an exclusive, I think two or three years ago, I think it was right after the election of Donald Trump at the NAACP conference. So perhaps if there's enough time, I'll come back in to the show and um, maybe interject a little, but yeah, Jane goes crazy on Donald Trump, but I tell you, I read this book called Lies My Teacher Told Me about maybe 12 years ago, and I've been just really digesting this book of how I was taught American history. And when I stumbled upon Jane Elliott about last month, for the first time in my life, and perhaps I was um, put through the blue eyes, brown eyes exercise, because I did go to elementary school in the, in the 1970s when this thing kind of was in vogue. But perhaps I would remember it if I, if I ever did participate in that exercise because it invokes so many feelings. But, um, you know, when all this rioting about George Floyd started, uh, I came upon just um, the Jane Elliott Blue Eyes, Brown Eyes exercise. It was posted on Instagram. 
I think it was on one of the cannabis people's um, Instagram feeds, and I watched it and just was struck that third graders have already built up an enormous amount of cognitive dissonance as far as being called a race and being told to identify as a race. And it's a really cool experiment how she asked the kids, do you want to participate in something where we learn about ourselves? And all the kids say, yes, yes, I want to do this. And she does it consensually. She's like, okay, we're going to spend the next two days doing this exercise. And it's a fascinating thing. And the YouTube video that I first seen, I think it's 15 minutes long, and it pretty much gives you the gist of what the blue eyes, brown eyes exercise is. And I was alarmed that it was never shown to me, and I never saw this. And there was one Frontline special in um, the 1980s that was broadcast, I think, once. <laughs> but it was commissioned by, I believe, um, the Canadian Broadcasting uh, Station, you know, the, the filming of her Blue Eyes, Brown Eyes experiment. And it just really put me over the edge with all the stuff that I learned from lies my teacher told me and how I had to restructure the way I was actually taught American history in the, in the context of um, race and white supremacy. That uh, white supremacy is systemic, and it begins with asking people to identify as a race on the census. Uh, so people are asking... Oh, give me an example of systemic white supremacy. Well, what's the first race listed when they ask you? <laughs> That's pretty much a very subtle thing, but it's on the census form, and everybody's going to see it this, this year. And I don't know how many people will understand that um, it doesn't help our country to operate by having to know everybody's um, skin color or, or this construct of... Um, what race do you identify as? And um, I think it was funny that a few years ago a woman was picked on because she was identifying as black and because her children were black and she just called herself black in that way. So I don't know if blackness and whiteness is the answer to this problem. But anyway, I, I felt very victorious this year by picking other for the race question, saying, I don't believe in race. I'm giving it up. I'm beyond it. And um, I think it is really cool, too, that I learned on Useful Idiots, um, on one of their latest ones, let me see. Uh, the interview was Omar Wasso on violence versus nonviolence, but he referred me to an article called Abolitionism and the White Studies Racket by Noel Ignatius. And I looked into Noel, and he's a, just an old style, he was like a commie back in the 60s, and then in the 90s he became a real strong academic, uh, which was uh, a, a different voice that, that was needed during... So look up Abolitionism and the White Studies Racket by Noel Ignatius. And so I'm continuing to just study myself and to understand that, um, you know, the idea that uh, once, you know, as a, as a person with white skin who's benefited from white supremacy, that it's my job to educate other white people of this. I don't, 
know if that's really the answer. I think it's more of like I have to participate and engage in it in a political way. That I think we're beyond um, hoping people are, uh, can you know, convinced out of their ignorance, but perhaps um, other people will find uh, a similar path that I found, you know, by sort of unlearning the way I learned history. And I'm really understanding that a lot of people, pretty much they're basing everything that they think on a version of history that they were taught. And I think um, a book like Lies My Teacher Told Me really, really um, helped me uh, as an American who was taught this version of (laughs) quote, American history. So I'm going to um, start playing these J- Jane Elliott uh, interviews. I didn't uh, edit, edit out one single word, <laughs> even though she goes crazy on Donald Trump. But it's a lot of fun. And um, she's a cool lady. And uh, God bless. Um, goddess bless. Uh, wow. She is just a powerhouse of a human being. And I love listening to her. And I hope you do, too. So yeah, this is Sean. I'm coming back in live, and I wanted to correct myself that it's called the Blue Eyes, Brown Eyes Exercise, because it's not an experiment, because what's clearly displayed is facts, and it's not um, up for any (laughs) debate, and um, we're not trying to prove anything. We're just trying to demonstrate things uh, with this exercise, so... I wanted to just correct myself that it's not called the blue eyes, brown eyes experiment. It's the blue eyes, brown eyes exercise. So with that, let me uh, start the Jane Elliott talks from the Black Nouveau YouTube channel. For people who don't know you, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm a third grade teacher in a country school near Rice, in Riceville, Iowa, and I am here at the NAACP speaking because the day after Martin Luther King Jr. was killed by a society that hated him because he was going to change the economic situation in this country, I did an exercise in discrimination with my third grade classroom to let my little third graders, all white, all Christian children, find out how it feels to be something other than white in the United States of America. I split them according to the color of their eyes and treated those who had their own color eyes for the day the way we have traditionally treated blacks, Native Americans, Asians, all those Jews, all those who are different in appearance or in religion. And we learned more that day than I wanted to know. What did that study show you? Oh, it showed me a lot of things. Number one, it showed me that racism is a learned response. Nobody's born a bigot. You have to teach bigotry, and that's what we do in this country. I found out how it feels to be on the receiving end of racism because I'm blue-eyed and the brown-eyed children were on the top in that first day. And I found out how it feels to be treated badly by people who, over whom you have power because of the wrong, uh, having the wrong color eyes. I found out how it feels to be subjected to unbelievable and unreal discrimination because of a physical characteristic over which I had no control. I thought I knew about racism. I thought I knew about child psychology. I knew nothing. All I knew was what I had learned in school. And what I had learned in school was not education. What I got in school wasn't education. It was indoctrination. I was taught how to be a good American citizen. 
And in this country, we think that the only Americans are the ones who live in the contiguous 48 states of the United States. Americans are everybody from the very north tip of Canada to the very south, southern tip of South America. But we, in our arrogance, say that we are the only Americans. If you're really going to keep this America to Americans, we don't dare build a wall on the southern border of the United States because those people, those brown-skinned people that are going to come across that border are Americans. Now we'd better choose our language or choose our behaviors. Let me tell you something. It wasn't a study and it wasn't an experiment. Exercise. I don't experiment with children without their knowledge or their permission. It was, an ex it was experiential education. It was giving a child an experience for the purpose of changing their brain. And that's exactly what it does every time I do it. Now, you conducted the same study, uh, I'm sorry, not study. Exercise. Exercise with adults. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And is it any different between the children and the adults? Adults get more violent. I've been hit several times by black, white males, angry white males. I've had a knife pulled on me. They ran, ran me out of Uniontown, Pennsylvania at midnight one night, three carloads of blacks did, to get me out of town because the teachers that I put through the exercise in a very limited way were so angry that they called the superintendent in the afternoon and said, if you don't get that bitch out of town, we're going to kill her. So they got me out of town. First time I've been scared. And the last time I've been scared. Because I found out that day that they could kill me, but they couldn't kill the idea. Victor Hugo said, no force on earth can stop an idea whose time has come. The idea of one race, the human race, is an idea whose time has come. We are not going to be able to stop it. No matter what they do, they can elect Trump after Trump after Trump, and that will not stop the idea that there's only one race on the face of the earth. It's the human race, and we are all members of it. You and I are cousins. Now, if you don't like being my cousin, that's too bad for you. But we are all in the same family. We are members of the family of man. You say that all whites are racist. Can you ex expound on that, please? Any, any white person who was born, raised, and schooled in the United States of America, if you aren't a racist, you're a miracle. Either that or you decided to educate yourself. Because education in this country is about white is right, brown's all right, black's got to stand back. Yellow's mellow, but whites, we, we educate in a way that says that white males have done all the adventures, have made all the adventures, have done all the discovering, have made all, and everything that is good and has been accomplished has been accomplished according to social studies, which is actually anti-social studies, by white males. It's a lie. But we do that in order to maintain the myth of white superiority. The myth of race has to be maintained at all costs in this country. Because if white people have to give up the color of their skin as being something that makes them perfect, what do they have left? If we start teaching the truth about history, if we start teaching about Nile Valley contributions to civilization, it will totally change the way we conduct ourselves in the classroom. It will have to. Columbus didn't discover America. You can't discover a place where people are already living. But we celebrate that every October. It's a lie. We need to, get over, we, we need to stop telling the myths and start telling the truth. So when you tell people that they're racist, and it, it must have some kind of effect because most people will say, I'm not racist. I'm not a racist. Why, some of my best friends are black. Right. Yeah, and then you say, name one. Or this one, I don't see color. And when some woman says to me, I don't see color, I say, I knew that. If you saw color, you wouldn't dye your hair that way. 
Or I say, if you didn't, if you saw color, you wouldn't wear that shirt with those pants. I believe that you don't see color. It's an attempt to deny skin color. And it's an attempt, an attempt to deny what's wrong with seeing the color of my skin. Is it all right for you to see me kind of pink? That's okay for me. I don't mind. And I suspect that you don't mind being seen the color you are. You have a right to be what you are. And until people in this country and people in this world get it into their heads that the first modern human beings that evolved on this earth were black women. They evolved in sub-Saharan Africa about 280,000 years ago. And every human being on the face of the earth today runs the me has the memory of those black women's genetic structure in their genes. Now, we don't want to admit that, but that's the way it is. And people, as people moved farther and farther from the equator, their bodies produced less and less melanin, so their hair, their skin, and their eyes got lighter. As they moved into the east, they ate a lot of fish and a lot of vegetables, so their skin took on a different tone. I found, I found that out when I was raising little kids. My husband worked in a supermarket. He, had, he was the head of the produce department. And they had lots of oranges that they couldn't sell, so he'd bring them home. And I was feeding my kids orange juice like you never saw in your life. They began to have an orange cast to their skin. I thought they had something, a liver problem. So I took him to the doctor, and she said, what are you feeding these kids? I said, well, lots of orange juice. She said, stop it if you want them to stop being orange. Now, if you think that skin color isn't anything other than the body's natural reaction to the natural environment, get over it. So if all white people are racist, according to you, can they be reprogrammed? Of course they can. Of course they can. Of How? course they can be. You, it's called education. I'm an educator. The word educator comes from the root duck deuce, which means lead, the prefix e, which means out, the suffix ate, which means the act of, and the suffix or, which means one who does. An educator is one who is engaged in the act of leading people out of ignorance. Now, I know you can change them. My, the, second, the second year I did the blue-eyed, brown-eyed exercise in my classroom, it was filmed by the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. They gave me a copy of that film. I showed it to my father. My father was about 59 years old at the time. He's been a farmer all his life. He raised six, he raised six, seven, six kids, lost one, raised, seven, raised six. Watch that film as a 59-year-old man. When it was over, he stood up. And with tears in his eyes, he took his red handkerchief out of the back pocket of his overalls, his bib overalls, and said, I wish somebody had taught me that when I was nine years old. Nobody had dare say to me, this doesn't work, this is too harsh, this isn't necessary, you can't teach an old dog new tricks because they're wrong. You can teach an old dog new tricks. You can teach people to give up the myth of racism. Somebody taught the Greeks to give up the myth that the sun was a god in a golden chariot that went across the sky every morning. They believed that for hundreds of years. We have believed the myth of three or four races, different races in this country, for long enough. 572 years or something like that is enough of that. It was a lie to begin with. Now, we, we often hear about reverse racism now. There's no such thing as reverse racism. There's no such thing as reverse racism. You can only be a racist if you have the power to institutionalize what you're doing to people who are different from you. What, you're call, what we're calling reverse racism is natural reaction to being treated unfairly on the basis of somebody else's ignorance. Now, don't ever let anybody say to you or about anyone around you that people don't like that person because of the color of their skin. That isn't the reason white people don't like people of color. They don't like people of color because they don't understand about skin color. 
and they don't understand that we all are descendants of somebody who looked like your mother. That's deep. Um, you want you don't really want to get me started on this. Because I, I do want to get you started. I'm really angry about what how we are miseducating the American mind. And, and what, what I like the most about what you're doing in your exercises is that you come in with a very direct attitude. You even call yourself the B word. Well, but you see, the B word for me is the one that's most often used to refer to me. It used to bother me a lot. For me, the B word is an acronym for being in total control, honey. So and, and you want to call me that? It'll prove to me that you're out of control. And then I'll whip out my little Lorena Bobbitt fruit knife and take care of it for you. Go on. So is it necessary to strip away all of a white person's power? Like in your exercises, in order for them to see the light, or is there another way it's to? Necess it's necessary to do what we do in offices and in the military and in schools and colleges and in hospitals and in community groups all the time. What we do is we become our parent ego. We go into our parent ego state. And that forces all those we're working with into their child ego state. And if you watch our present, so-called president, he spends most of his time either in his child or his parent ego state. He never gets into his adult ego state unless he's reading off the teleprompter. And he is such a poor reader that oftentimes he makes mistakes and then he is instantly in his child ego state right in front of your very eyes. It's absolutely fascinating to watch it happen. Speaking of our president, a lot of people say that racism has risen under, under him. Do you I mean, anybody who doesn't say that hasn't been paying attention. It absolutely has. I'm getting more hate mail now than I have gotten for years. The kinds of things that are being said in this country today are things that he has said for the last two years. He has said them publicly, and he got elected because he said them publicly. We have a group of people in the United States of America who were in response to eight years of a black man in the White House and the possibility that they might have from four to eight years of a woman in the White House will elect anything that walks and can chew gum at the same time. This last, this last election, as far as I'm concerned, was a direct response to having a black man in the White House for eight years. And it's time to change the White House to the President's House. This is ridiculous to call the place where the President of the United States lives the White House. It, gives the, it sends the wrong message. It says, I remember when Richard Nixon said to a group of reporters, I'm trying to save the White House for you white people. That says it all. And at that moment I thought, well, wait a minute. Now this is something that has to be changed, and it has to be changed. Nothing can stop an idea whose time has come. It's time to change the name of the White House to the President's House or the President's Residence, which has a nice ring to it, don't you think? <laughs> okay, let's just say that Donald Trump, President Trump, is trying to bring the country together like he said he would do. He was, wait a second, he's trying to bring the country together. How would he go about doing that? And, and Resign. If he really wants to bring the country together, all he has to do is resign and take his what do you call him, with him, the second in command, the vice president. That would bring the country together. But right now, the only way he can bring the country together is put somebody else in the president's office. He does not know how to be a president. He does not know what legislation is about. He does not know how to do this job. 
He didn't intend to get this job. And had it not been for the Electoral College, he wouldn't have this job. Mrs. Clinton won the popular vote. The only reason we have this person as the President of the United States right now is because the members of the Electoral College didn't do what that Electoral College was designed to do. Thomas Jefferson designed that to make sure that no one who was unfit for that office would ever be elected President of the United States. The Electoral College last year absolutely defeated that. With the state of the country being what it is right now, um, there's a lot of conversations taking place about you know, let's have a conversation about race. How would a person go about having that conversation? What can they expect to happen in, in a conversation? Well, like the that? first thing they have to do is not talk about tolerance. I found out the day I was on the bottom in the blue-eyed, brown-eyed exercise with my students, I found out how it feels to be tolerated. I found out that tolerance means put up with or allow me to be. I don't need your allowance. And I don't need to be tolerated. I want to be valued, recognized, and appreciated. Put your tolerance where the sun doesn't shine. I do not believe in tolerance. Because in this country, we tolerate zits when we're little, zits when we're teenagers, hot flashes when we're old, and the flu and bad weather in between. We tolerate ugly things that are going to go away. I don't intend to tolerate anyone. I intend to recognize, appreciate, and value people, not to tolerate them. And I have all kinds of respect for the man who is part of the tolerance group in Atlanta, maybe. I have all kinds of respect for those folks, but we've got to change it from tolerance because the powerful can tolerate. The powerless have to wait to be tolerated. I have no time for that. I like that. No, I'm going to get lots of angry responses to that one. And I understand that, but I'm reading a book right now. Everybody needs to read this book. It's called, everybody has to read this, Everybody that's watching this has to read this book on tyranny. 20, 20 things that we've learned over the last hundred years in this country that have put us in the position we're in now and what we can do about it. Everybody has to read this book. They should read this book first and then they should read The Myth of Race by Robert Wald Sussman. And once you've read The Myth of Race, you will never, ever again go along with the idea that there are three or four or five different races. It was a lie made up by the people who ran the Spanish Inquisition. And before that, there were different colors, but there, there was, race had nothing to do. There, were, there, were, there was only one race, the human race. We made that whole thing up. It's time to get rid of it. We have the power to do that. This country got ready for World War II in about six months. And you're telling me that we can't destroy racism? White people created racism. Anything you create, you can destroy. God created human beings, the human race, and they started out black women. White people created racism. Human beings created racism. It's time to get over it. Uh, can we go back one second? <laughs> sure you can. You, you criticized President Trump. Did I? One thing that a lot of people have criticized President, former President Obama on was not speaking out on race enough. Do you think he failed in that? What if he had spoken out enough on race? Imagine what would have happened to him. The man is still alive. Do you remember Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.? Do you remember Malcolm X? Do you remember all those people have been killed not because of the color of their skin, 
but because of the fear of white people that someone who isn't white is going to look better, sound better, act better, do better than they do. Mr. Obama was the president of all of us. He wasn't just the president of black people. He was the president of all of us. The man who's there now is and claims to be the president of the people who look like him. When he says, make America great again, what he's really saying is, make America hate again. Wow, so, um, wow, I'm sorry, I forgot to uh, play her third clip, but I'm going to play it in just a moment, but wow, she's just um, dynamo, so let's get, let's get back to Jane Elliott's last segment. Today, most urban sectors, especially Milwaukee, is, remains hyper-segregated. Why is it taking so long, or why doesn't it seem like we can move the button on diversity in neighborhoods? Because the people who have the power in this country are the people who have the money. And the people who have the money are going to decide where people live. You need to realize that there are more children attending segregated schools in the United States today than there were previous to Brown versus Board of Education. And that's a fact. You need to realize that it is not the intent of white people to let this situation change in favor of anyone but themselves. And right now, white people are really frightened. If you don't understand the destruction of Planned Parenthood uh, offices, and you don't understand the wall that we're going to build on the southern border of the United States, you haven't read the book The Birth Dearth by Ben Wattenberg. Ben Wattenberg was a brilliant Jewish man who was a member of the American Enterprise Institute, and he wrote a book, the first paragraph of which says, the main problem confronting the United States today is there aren't enough white babies being born in this country. He was an advisor to presidents of the United States. He wrote the book in 1987. He says, there are, if we don't change this and change it rapidly, white people will lose their numerical majority in this country and this will no longer be a white man's land. Now, I'm not misrepresenting this. I'm telling you exactly, almost exactly what he says. He says there are three things we can do to solve this. Number one, we could pay women to have babies as they have been doing in Western European nations for years. Then he says, and these are his words, not mine, unfortunately, we would have to pay women of all colors to have babies, so we don't want to do that. He says the second thing we could do is increase the number of legal immigrants that are allowed into this country every year. Then once again he says, unfortunately, the vast majority of those wanting to come to this country today are people of color, so we don't want to do that. The third thing he says, and white men, women had better pay attention to this, 60% of the fetuses that are aborted every year are white. If we could keep that 60% alive, that would solve our birth dearth. Does that sound like racism to you? And if it doesn't, I want to know why it doesn't. If it doesn't, you don't understand what racism is. And I think it does. When we close Planned Parenthood clinics because we think they're there only for abortion, we need to take another look. They are used for many, many, many things, and many women need the things that they can get from Planned Parenthood clinics. But we are willing to do away with all that good to avoid allowing white women to have control of their own bodies. Now, nobody had better tell one of my daughters or granddaughters what they can do with their body. You haven't that right. Now, it would be interesting if we were as concerned about sperm cells, wouldn't it? Um, I mean, we could take a whole lot of fun out of you boys' lives. Right. 
uh, a, a lot of people uh, don't understand the trauma associated with race and racism. Can you talk a little bit about the trauma associated with The trauma associated with it? Yeah. One of the main traumas is it tells white people that they are superior because of the lack of melanin in their skin. And then they find out suddenly that we've got a black president. That's traumatic. That's where the trauma is. Living a lie, finding out the truth, is traumatic. Finding out now, recently, that within 30 years, white people will be in the numerical minority in this country is going to be traumatic. And that's the reason we have to solve this problem, and we have to solve it now. I will ask folks tonight, how many of you black folks want to get even with all white people? And that's what white people are quite certain blacks are going to want to do, is get even with all white people. And nobody will raise their hand. And then I'll say, how many of you want to get even with one or two? Every hand will go up, and you know why, and so do I. White people are scared to death right now, particularly white males. They're scared to death that they are going to lose their power in the future. And they are. But if you want to get ready for the future, if you want to be treated well in the future, treat others well in the present. What we do in the present constructs the future. What we have done in the past, we can learn from that. And we'd better learn from that. Those who forget the mistakes of the past are doomed to repeat them. And when you read this book, you'll realize that that's exactly what we're doing. We're repeating the mistakes that we have made in the past because we aren't teaching about these mistakes in the present. We are not teaching history that is true. We aren't teaching social studies that is true. We aren't even teaching true geography, for God's sake. Have you seen the Mercator map recently? Have you seen that great big Greenland hanging down in the middle of that map like a ripe plum? And have you seen the legend at the bottom that says South America is actually nine times larger than Greenland? Were you aware of that? Most of those watching this program are not aware of that. You, you mentioned the wall several times. In the, at first we heard several things about the wall. First, we, Mexico was going to pay for the wall and... Yeah, but you need to know that 70% of what Mr. Mr. Number 44 and a half said during that campaign wasn't true. And the wall business wasn't true either. If his mouth is moving, his lips are moving, he's probably lying. You know that as well as I do. He doesn't intend to build a wall. We can't afford to build that wall. We have no business building that wall. We would be keeping Americans out of America. What's your question? The question on the wall is there's... You know, when you talk to people about the wall, certain people about the wall, there's certain people for it, certain people against it. The people who are for it, what, what's their mindset? They're scared. They're afraid those people, those immigrants are going to come over here and take their jobs. Let me tell you something. You can build a wall, you can build a wall 50 feet tall, and smart Hispanics, Latinos, smart Ecuadorians, smart others, are going to tunnel under that wall and come up in their friend's house on the other side. You can build walls until hell freezes over. You will not keep that immigration from happening, and you better hope we don't keep that immigration from happening. We need those people. Do you know what will happen to the economy of this country if we take all the people who are brown-skinned immigrants out of this country, if we send them back? Do you know what will happen to our economy? Do you know what will happen to farming in California? Do you know what will happen to the price of your fruit? Do you know how hard it will be to get a good avocado? Do you have any idea what will happen to this country's economy if all those brown-skinned people go back to Mexico? I don't think we do. I don't think people have thought about that because they are being taught not to think. 
They are using a language. Right now, we are using a language that includes words like extremism and ugly language about people who are different from ourselves. People are listening to those words. They aren't listening to the philosophy behind them. They aren't listening to the core principles which this person has none of. Now, um, just couple more questions um, when we hear uh, when I when I hear people say that they're not racist and, <laughs> and and things like that and we talk about building racial harmony in this country I don't think I'll see it in my lifetime can you predict in the near future or far future when we will ever have uh, racial harmony oh in yeah in 30 years white people will have will have found out that they have no 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 choice but to get along with those who are different from themselves I'm not willing I'd love to wait but I can't uh, at my age I'm not going to be here in 30 years but we could change this situation if we chose to. During, during the Second World War, we called the Japanese, and you'll pardon me, but this is what we called them, slant-eyed little yellow mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We didn't say that about the Germans. After the war, we rebuilt Germany and Japan, and we get along beautifully with the Japanese. That was in 1945 that we finally won that war. How, ma- how many years ago was that? Figure that out quickly. I'm not a math person, but... You're not a math person, but you know it wasn't that far. Right. And it didn't take 50 years for us to, to have peace with the Japanese and the Germans, even though, even though we dropped two atomic bombs on Japan. The Japanese hadn't killed 10 million people. Nowhere near that. We didn't drop any bombs on Germany, any, any atomic bombs on Germany. They were a different kind of people. We couldn't afford to do that. We killed how many... Japanese people with two atomic bombs, and they forgave us. You want to talk about forgiveness? You want to talk about changing this thing? I cannot understand how Japanese people can stand the sight of any of us, and yet they do. I cannot understand why black people who have been subjected to the ugliness that they've been subjected to in this country can get up every morning and go to work among us and not be absolutely furious. And I don't understand why we allow white people to behave the way they do. I don't understand that. And my third graders, after they'd gone through the exercise, couldn't understand it and wouldn't tolerate it. And when they went up to junior high, and a junior high teacher used the N-word, one of my, my former students said, if you're going to use that word, I'm going to go out in the hall until you stop using it. Says, we don't use that word in this school. That was a a seventh grader who told his teacher off when we have enough students who are willing to confront people who are making racist, sexist, ageist, homophobic statements, we're going to be better off. We have got to stop tolerating the intolerable. If it's intolerable for my black cousins and every black person on this earth is one of my cousins, if it's intolerable for them, it's intolerable for me. I will not tolerate it. I will not tolerate it. That is not that. I am required not to tolerate that kind of treatment for the people who are related to me. And that's every person on the face of the earth. If your ignorance is such that you will mistreat somebody because of your ignorance about the color of their skin, don't do it around me. Number one, I've been threatened with death lots of times. Now I say, go for it, fool. My husband died four years ago. Being with him would not be a bad thing for me. Death is not the worst thing that can happen to you. Living a worthless, useless life is much worse than dying. Yeah, so that is 
Jane Elliott from 2018. It was an interview series on the Black Nouveau on uh, YouTube channel. So, yeah, I uh, remember one thing that I learned this past month that I wanted to mention on the show is uh, I listened to another podcast called the No Agenda Podcast, and they play clips of news stories from all different channels, and I really like it. It's just a very much a cornucopia of clips. Uh, they're kind of like um, anti-Biden, <laughs> pro-Donald Trump in their slant of things. So there's, um, but they try to be, <laughs> um, you know, critical of both sides. But anyway, one of the really cool things was they were playing a news story of an identical, I have to go back and find out what they were playing, but the commentary is they played the news story as reported by CNBC, which is the financial arm of the NBC media, and then they played the same story as published on MSNBC and regular NBC, and the CNBC uh, version of the story was a lot more accurate and not withholding of all the details of the story and very much different and opposite of what MSNBC, NBC. And the comment was made that since CNBC is a financial news network and they're, they're, they're governed by regulations by the Security Exchange Commission, which um, the other um, FDA regulations on news reporting and media is less strict than a financial news network. So that is very fascinating that um, the SEC does regulate media in the form of it being truthful. <laughs> so I'm very um, interested that I'm, I'm very much attracted to um, reading Forbes and Wall Street Journal because there is sort of um, a strict strictness of um, the way they, they present the news. So that is something that I learned and I'm going to just continue to explore that, yeah, why do I like to get, you know, basic, uh, you know, headlines and news from these sort of uh, conservative financial type places? Because, they, yeah, you're more likely to get a more accurate, uh, inclusive of all the facts and things that are surrounding the story. So I, I wish I had a firm example to display this idea, but so perhaps next month on the show, I'll come back with some more of this, like, how do you analyze um, what you hear in the news and how do you balance it with other different versions? It's a, it's a, it's a great exercise and I enjoy it. Um, although I don't need to spend too much time, um, which is wonderful too that, you know, I'm learning to just, you know, go with my gut. You know, usually when things are are BS, you know, my gut tells me right off the bat, yeah, check into that. Um, let's see what, what facts are being withheld. So that's what I'm finding out, though, that when I detect something is not being truthful, it's not an outward lie. It's more of just withholding uh, details of a story. It's an interesting way to uh, have to discern uh, uh, I, that old word from maybe five or six years ago, I don't know how old it is, truthiness, you know, <laughs> that's like, that could contain a little bit more truthiness. 
I'm going to get back to um, the theme of uh, race and racism and transcending it and read this article. Oh, yeah, I also wanted to mention that Jane Elliott mentioned the book, and it looks pretty good. It's called On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century. Let me check. Yeah, 130 pages, so 20 20 stories, 20 lessons from the 20th century in 130 pages. That looks like a, a fun book, and she's a good teacher in the way that she would recommend something that's brief and hard-hitting. So, yeah, I'm going to put that on my Kindle free sample list, and those Kindle free samples is a wonderful way just to look at a book. I can tell within the first two or three pages whether I can read a book or not. So it is uh, an interesting way to stroll through your bookstore nowadays is um, yeah, download a few samples on Kindle, begin reading it, and you'll know if you want to continue reading it within first three or four pages. At least that's been my experience with those Kindle free samples. And yeah, perhaps if you really love books, you can order the hard copy after reading the Kindle free sample. So yeah. So I think I want to get back into the race um, and read this article that I learned about from the Matt Taibbi Useful Idiots podcast. And it's from 1999. It's by Noel Ignatius or Ignatius. And he was a Harvard professor. I explained uh, a little bit before. Uh, old, old lefty from the 60s, but he became uh, very influential in the 1990s. I believe he, he was a professor at Harvard. So it's titled Abolitionism and the White Studies Racket by Noel Ignatius. Over the past few years, white studies has become an academic industry. Scarcely a week goes by that does not see a new book on the, quote, reconstruction of whiteness, unquote. There are at least five college readers on the subject. At least three universities have sponsored conferences on whiteness, and more are planned. <laughs> the dissertation mill is operating round the clock, and, quote, white studies, unquote, may soon boast its own junior faculty. The mainstream press has caught on to the excitement, reporting often with the snicker, the latest discovery by the academy that white people have race, too. Quote, white studies, unquote. May, may not survive the first frost. Nevertheless, among those studying whiteness, there have appeared diff differing tendencies. From a political standpoint, the two camps are the preservationists and the abolitionists. At the present time, those whom I've chosen to call preservationists seek to identify and preserve a white identity apart from, the white, from white supremacy and racial oppression. The Center for the Study of White American Culture based in New Jersey conducts an internet discussion group and has sponsored three conferences on whiteness. Its founder and moving spirit, Jeff Hitchcock, says, we need people who are conscious of being white and we need to give them room to be white. <laughs> Among the preservationists are Matt Ray and Annalee Newitz, editors of the book, White Trash who declare, quote, it is time we use our imaginations to invent alternative forms of white identity, which understand the disasters which constitute all forms of racial dominations, unquote. 
seeking, quote, an, an acceptable multi, multicultural form of white racial identity, unquote. They naturally turn their attention toward elements of popular culture that might plausibly be described as, quote, white. Among the elements they look at are the Elvis cult, ice hockey, and gun shows. So I think I'm going to stop reading this, um, but it is called Abolitionism and the White Studies Racket. And it's an old newsletter. It's called Race Trader, <laughs> Winter 1999, number 10. So uh, and their motto is treason to whiteness is loyalty to humanity. So, yeah, I was trying to read, but it's a little bit difficult to read because there's a lot of quotes and a lot of brackets, and I don't think it's really meant to be read out loud and understood easily. So if you'd like to read that article, so that is a cool reading, and it really blew my mind that there was sort of a white identity movement going on and uh, there is an industry of, you know, doing these um, things. I'm trying to think of what, what they would be called, sensitivity training industries. And the article goes on to discuss how, like, a lot of these diversity and sensitivity trainings are sort of like cancer doctors who secretly like, you know, having the problem. <laughs> And um, I don't know, I, I really would like you to read it yourself to see, to see that, yeah, there is an industry that goes around this. And, but nonetheless, I'm, the last clip that I'm going to play tonight is from an author who's read, written a book named White Fragility. I watched a few of the um, interviews by Robin D'Angelo, and she pretty much has spent hours and hours in these sensitivity training classes by teaching them and observing the way people act and um, knowing that the silence that is experienced is very much uh, motivated by um, a fragility of, not, of being afraid to speak and to have an open discussion. So um, I think once, you know, the, the ideas in the book are meant to help uh, people with this so-called white fragility to transcend it and to have and start having conversations and not worry about feel, you know being ex expressing defensiveness because I think if you express your defensiveness you're more likely to have a conversation and then if you're silent and moping <laughs> in um, a short because I've been in these. Um, Fortune 500 companies. I've worked for corporations where they send you to these sensitivity trainings all the time, and it never really occurred to me is um, by not speaking, you're actually <laughs> just expressing more um, and digging yourself in even further. <laughs> so I really liked her outlook on what she's observed, and I'm sure she's probably done thousands of hours of these classes, and has seen the same behaviors over and over and over again and to basically come up with this wonderful book that a lot of people love. But one of the coolest things I picked out of this is just a short minute and a half um, snippet from an interview on the Teaching Tolerance YouTube channel. So I want to give proper attribution. You can go and watch the full Robin D'Angelo video on interview on the Teaching Tolerance YouTube channel. So I wanted to just play this clip and hopefully it'll um, 
yeah, strike you as deeply as it struck me. And I think she's very honest in just sharing this is what I've experienced. She's not saying it's facts. She's just saying I've been doing hundreds of hours of these things and I'm seeing the same thing over and over and over again. So I, I kind of side with this woman, even though my hero, Matt, Matt Taibbi, just tore, tore it apart by reading the book and just picking it apart in a very literary way. So, uh, <laughs> so here's Robin D'Angelo, and I'll be back uh, to close the show soon. For me, thinking about this through the lens of sexism has been really, really useful. So when there's a piece of feedback I've been given, let's say, and I'm feeling defensive about it and I'm thinking of responding in a certain way, I just change the roles in my head and I imagine that a man has just said to me what I'm thinking of saying back to this person of color and then usually I can see it really, really clearly. You know, um, as a feminist, uh, I, I thought about sexism and the way that it worked, you know, most of my life, right? I'm not new to that the way I was when I came to kind of racial consciousness, right? It's so much easier to think about where we have less and so much harder to think about where we're benefiting from somebody else having less, right? And if I was in a session with a group of men and the topic was sexism and rape culture and a man sat there and never said a word, I would not assume he was supportive of the conversation. I would absolutely assume he was hostile because that's my experience, that usually that move is one of uh, hostility. It's a power move uh, uh, at the minimum. Because in that setting, if we're talking gender, um, I'm going to be acutely aware of the power he holds as a man. And so his silence is going to unsettle me. It, unless he shows me differently, that's the assumption I'm making. So that white paralysis communicates something. It's not neutral, right? Uh, it, it doesn't allow people of color to determine where you're coming from and how they might be able to be with you in a way that's safe for them. Yeah, so that's a snippet from Robin D'Angelo. And I stopped reading at the most perfect time because we're going to have plenty of time for our closing music, which is our Generation X um, music musician, extraordinary um, Melissa Etheridge. And this was from her In My Room video on the Rolling Stone YouTube channel. So have a good month. And uh, please uh, write me some emails, uh, peoplesmedicineshow at gmail.com. Or I'm on, on Instagram. You can, my name is Big Island Botanica. So have a good month, and I'll be back in August. Sending out love to everyone who's been uh, singing this song a little bit too much because their friends and neighbors and loved ones can only come to their window. <laughs> I would dial the numbers just to listen to your breath. I would stand inside my hell hold the hand of death. You don't know how far I'd go to ease this precious air. You don't know how much I'd give or how much I can take just to reach you.